This podcast is brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Keep Joy on air by becoming a member, a subscriber or donate. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community. Welcome to a Joycast from Joy 94.9. Visit joy.org.au to find out more about our Joycasts. LGBTIQ spoken word events from Australia and from around the world. I'm Dean and this is The Cheap Seats, podcast edition. Thanks for joining me. In this podcast, we are in Oakland, California for the 26th annual National Poetry Slam, a competition event where poets from North America perform original work to a live audience. The poets perform with passion about topics and autobiographical themes close to their hearts. Topics range from the amusing to the challenging to the downright confronting. Some of the performers use strong language and express themes that you may find confronting. So if it sounds like that this isn't for you, maybe check out some of our other podcasts on our website at joy.org.au forward slash cheap seats. But if it does sound like it might be interesting, stick around and join me for the Poultry Slam on the Cheap Seats on Joy 94.9. National Poetry Slam, Melissa Lozada Olivia. Like totally whatever, after Taylor Molly. In case you haven't realized, it has somehow become necessary for old white men to tell me how to speak. They like interrupt a conversation that isn't even theirs and are like speak like you mean it and like the internet is ruining the English language and they like put my parentheticals my likes and ums and your nose on a wait list tell them no one will take them seriously in a frilly pink dress or that makeup tell them they have a confidence problem that they should learn to speak up like the hyper masculine words who are always the first to raise their hands Invisible red pens and college degrees have been making their way into the middle of my sentences. I've been crossing things out every time I take a moment to think. Declarative sentences, so-called because they declared themselves to be the loudest, most truest, most taking up the most space, most totally white man sentences, have always told me that being angry has never helped like anybody, has only gotten in the way of helping them declare more shit about how they'll never be forgotten like ever. It's like F. Scott Fitzgerald and Ernest Hemingway were geniuses for turning women into question marks. It's like rapes. It's like rapes happen all the time on campuses, but as soon as John Krakauer writes about it, suddenly it's like innovative nonfiction and not like something girls are like making up for like attention. And it's like maybe I'm always speaking in questions because I'm so used to being cut off. It's like maybe this is defense mechanism. Maybe everything girls do is evolution of defense mechanism like this is protection like our likes are our knee pads our ums are the knives we tuck into our boots at night our you knows are the best friends we call when we're walking down a dark alley like this is how we breathe easier but I guess feelings never helped anybody I guess like tears never made change I guess like everything girls do is a waste of time So welcome to the bandwagon of my own uncertainty. 
Watch as I stick flowers in your punctuation mark guns. Cause you can't just challenge authority. You gotta take it to the mall too. Teach it to do the bend and snap. Paint its nails, braid its hair, tell it it looks like really good today. And in that moment, before you murder it with all of the poison in your like softness, you let it know that like this, like this moment is like, um, you know, me using my voice. National Poetry Slam, Olivia Fantini. Good morning, boys and girls. Welcome to the sixth grade National Assessment of Educational Progress. Technological devices which provide an unfair advantage are not permitted. If you are in possession of such a device, including but not limited to cell phones, iPods, tablets, calculators, white privilege, parents with a college education, or a household annual income above the poverty line, please power it down now and raise your hand. The proctor will return your device at the end of the testing period. One, if Peter reads at a rate of 200 words per minute in the fourth grade of a local private school and his reading level is growing exponentially, how long will it take Peter to read all seven of the Harry Potter books? I ask the ESL specialist what resources are available for my students who have just immigrated to the U.S. She sends me a link to an online language program none of my students can afford. Two, if Monica reads 20 words per minute in English and 30 words per minute in Spanish in the sixth grade of the best public middle school in Providence, how long will it take her to read the 500-word article on the failings of public education? I ask the ESL specialist what resources are available for a student who spent fourth and fifth grade in a refugee camp. She tells me her boss will reach out to the family he never does. Three, students who are not proficient readers by the end of third grade are four times less likely to graduate from high school by age 19. At poverty, these students become 13 times less likely to graduate on time. Multiply by one out of 10 high school dropouts spends time in prison. Divide by racism, take the square root of reality, subtract irrational numbers and unreal dreams. Where will Monica be in five years? Please put down your pencils and close your testing booklets. Wait silently while the white teacher who grew up in a wealthy suburb and has never taken a standardized test collects your materials, feels like a cog in the bowels of the things she despises, begins another letter to the ESL specialist who has stopped responding, gives up, and addresses it to herself. Dear Olivia... Do not think you know their struggle because you drive into their neighborhood every morning at 7 and back to the east side at 4. Do not think you see through the window what they see. You are not looking through the same window. You will never be looking through the same window. It is impossible to shed a heritage of privilege. Examine your reflection in the window. Do not try to give your students a voice by lending your own. Your job is not to tell their story, but to be a microphone held to their lips, a stepping stool, a cheerleader. Olivia, do not stop teaching. Do not move to a school in the suburbs. Do not switch to private education. Do not write an end to this poem, Olivia. This isn't over. National Poetry Slam, 
Pages Matam. Johnny Bravo, Dexter's Laboratory, and the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. Were some of the best English teachers a francophone immigrant like me could ever have. Their curriculum riddled in laughter, impossible exploits, and the daunting task of saving the world from the aliens. My accent. My accent is a Saturday morning cartoon. It often riddled others with laughter. Coiling into a language not its own was an impossible exploit. Trying to transform into something powerful enough to save everyone else from the alien and the shame that came from being made to feel different, that my accent, my culture, my breath was too unreal and did not deserve to be so animated. Two, why being detained by immigration feels like food poisoning. The handcuffs tight around my wrists were the invitation for dinner. I unfolded my pride, laid it on my lap like a napkin to catch the crumbs of American pie my Douala mouth will not. I cut my passport into pieces, salted its savory wounds, swallowed each jagged portion until a diaspora lined my small intestines and my visa almost tasted renewed, eating at a table bearing no welcome Food from the American kitchen, four centuries deep in cross-contaminated meal prep, digestion has never been easy for the foreign stomach. Three, my language was to be deported so I would forget where I came from. Trying to translate the catacombs of my parents' tongues into maybe a diploma, into maybe that white picket flesh while still living on Section 8 bones, while I still wish that I wasn't too black for Africans or too African for blacks, but still all meaningless in America because the bullet never asks what part of the ocean are you from. The bullet doesn't care about your immigrant experience. The bullet is a model minority. The bullet is customs. The bullet is dreaming of the ocean inside of you, America. Show us your papers. Who documented your dream? Can the attack dog still smell the unalienable right from my brittle and marginalized skin? I am a ready meal. I traversed an ocean for you. I am the ocean, already seasoned, full of salt. National Poetry Slam, Patrick Roche. Instructions on having the perfect panic attack. Find a trigger. A job interview, the claustrophobia of mass transit, deciding what to have for dinner. It will help if you have a chronic condition, severe depression, an anxiety disorder, asthma. This is ideal, but may not be possible for everyone. Your body will instinctively revert to its most primal state, fearing for your life. Your sympathetic nervous system will activate its fight-or-flight response in the face of this perceived danger, this decision between Chipotle and Chinese food. 
The body can only panic for a maximum of about 20 minutes. Follow these instructions closely to make the most of this time. Your breathing is the only part of this process you can control. Do not. This would drastically shorten the attack. Focus on the constricting of your rib cage, on your drum major heart conducting this frantic march. Mistake this for a heart attack or a stroke. If successful, you may lose control of your extremities. The caveman in your limbs will tense every muscle to flee his predator. Your arms and legs will go numb. Starting at your hands and feet, every twitch and tingle, an attempt to run for your life. Stay in place. Do not go for a walk. Do not call your friends, your mother, your psychiatrist, an ambulance. By now, you should be in a full panic. Hyperventilation cutting off oxygen to your brain. You will feel faint, become certain of your own death. Do not call your friends. Do not call your mother. Do not call your psychiatrist. A panic attack is a remarkably solitary experience. The presence of another person could have a calming effect and cut the attack short. Resist the temptation to fumble a hand through the desk drawer for the medication you've been prescribed for this. Instead, locate the toolkit your grandfather gave you three years ago when he told you, I'm giving you this so you can fix anything. Place it on the desk. Open it. Steady your right hand long enough to grasp the box cutter. Note how close the blood vessels lie beneath the sheets of your skin. Place the blade of the box cutter to the snare drum in your wrist. At this point, your panic attack may begin to ebb. The body can only panic for a maximum of about 20 minutes. As your breathing and heart rate steady, find a bottle of water to hydrate yourself. Drop the box cutter into the garbage can. Return the toolkit to the desk drawer. Distract yourself with a walk or a TV show. Your body will assume it has survived for another day. Until the next trigger, at which point you will repeat the process. But do remember, you are not having a heart attack. You are not dying. The body can only panic for a maximum of about 20 minutes. And in that time, every piece of you, every basic, primal piece of you is screaming for you to survive. Joy 94.9 is a GLBTIQ community radio station in Melbourne, Australia. Support Joy 94.9 by becoming a member at joy.org.au. National Poetry Slam, Rachel Wiley. Glory in two parts. One... What you think you mean when you say that I glorify obesity is that I am an undeserved celebration. A gluttonous mass of uncontrol, a patron saint of unhealth, a pageant of sloth and wheeze and uncontrol, a gasping heart, Madonna. You think you mean how can she possibly raise her fat face to the sun in worship rather than submitting to the gravity of shame? That I am a sickness rolled in caramel and body glitter, a fatted gold calf in a sugar-glazed crown. What you think you mean when you say that I glorify obesity is how dare she? Two. What you actually mean when you say that I glorify obesity is indeed I am glorious. Because who would not exalt something as miracle as living body? You mean to revere the way that I keep rising despite a world who does not want the truth of me. 
You mean to say that my arm fat jiggles like a pair of fleshy tambourines, that my walk speaks a gospel of rubbing thighs, that my ass sways like a well-trained choir, that my fupa is an altar built around something holy and worth bowing down to. Now you can be the devil I dance away, or you can come dance your devils away with me. Hating my body will not absolve you of your own shameful sins, and I will not carry them on my back either. I will just be a one-woman tent revival with the lights on late, sweat slick, and handing out glory. What you actually mean when you say that I glorify obesity is hallelujah. So go ahead and say hallelujah. Say hallelujah. Say hallelujah to the back fats. Hallelujah to the generous rolls of flesh. Hallelujah to the stretch marks. Hallelujah to the cellulite. Hallelujah to the still thumping heart. Hallelujah. Say it with me. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Glory, glory. Glory, glory. National Poetry Slam, Sabrina Benham. Hello. When I say hello, I mean thank you. When I say thank you, I mean I adore you. And when I say I adore you, I mean I will check your horoscope. (laughs) I mean when you leave the balloons that you carry in your laughter behind on my ceiling, well, I like them better than flowers. My body is a garden rooted in gratitude. Thank you is the biggest poem I've got inside of me. Me? I am a campfire cold hearts like to sit around and roast their marshmallows in. But when I say campfire, I mean tiny furnace. Little light lady, I mean I am not the path of least resistance. But I swear I was struck by lightning, bang, boom, wow, this one time at Coachella when Jay-Z brought out Beyonce. I mean I am flawless procrastinator. My heart is a messy bedroom. I always distract myself from cleaning. I digress. When I say Beyonce came out, I mean fireworks went off and I cried. (laughs) When I say I cried, I mean I taught the clouds how to cry for me, dig? I wouldn't say I'm sensitive. I would say I'm highly susceptible to feeling a lot. And sometimes... Sometimes there just ain't enough rocks, Forrest Gump. When I say my feelings are a box of chocolates, I mean I like to eat them. I also like to get high enough to look myself in the third eye, but when I say I like to get high, I mean sometimes after I shower, I thank the towel. (laughs) Snap, crackle, or pop? Me, pop. I mean I got this violent tendency to see a bubble and want to pop it, which is to say I have held love. But I popped it and locked it, then dropped it and lost it. I didn't mind. (laughs) Love made me feel like I knew the answer, but when I raised my hand, I was the only one in the room. What I mean is, have you ever felt the ache of swallowing starlight? That cinnamon heartburn? What I mean is his name is still a plate set at the table of my tongue because I learn love like, wait for it. If I called the last person you said I love you to, could they tell me they felt it? Can you feel this? I'm allergic to liars. They cause my tongue to swell and sharpen bullet flesh tongue. I mean, my kiss tastes like a shotgun to the lips. You'll like it. 
It'll make you feel brave. My first crush was on Benny the Jet Rodriguez. I swear that boy ran so fast he could fly by foot. I always say I am a hummingbird. But when I say hummingbird, I mean sometimes my hands forget how to hold. Become two teacups in an earthquake. My body is a rattle of splintered bones. But when I say my body, I mean blunt guts and then some. My body miraculous. I spent an entire year sleeping on a bed of swords and was not cut once. What I mean is my lonely looks a lot like insomnia when you hold it up to the light. What I mean is if I came to you lonely as a grocery store parking lot at 5 a.m. blowing smoke rings pretending they are halos, could you believe in the magic? Not beauty, not the beast. I'm talking enchanted castle. I mean my body space jam. My body has ways to tell anything else than the truth. Flight response. Hey, do you ever just sit on the end of your bed and listen to the world spin? I hear that song everywhere, but when I say that song, what I mean is time. Time is a holy catastrophe of heirloom clock faces that don't fit my wrists, dig? The only instrument I know how to play is my body. I like my body best when I am not worried about how much space it's taking up. I mean dancing. But when I say dancing, I mean shimmy and a shake and a wop wop drop. My body's got moves, y'all. Like it sleeps in a waterbed. What I mean is my body sleeps in itself. I am best prepared for the worst case scenario. The best case scenario scares me. Flight response. My mother tells me I am a bird. But when she says I am a bird, she means the whole world is my cage. In my dreams, I can fly and there is no such thing as cage. Meaning there is no such thing as time. I have been here before. I mean, I recognize that moon and I know, I know there are many moons and my gratitude, it eclipses them all. So I say thank you. I say thank you, but I guess I just mean hello. National Poetry Slam, Sam Rush. When I was a little boy, I played Peter and rescued Wendy from Captain Hook in the crocodile's tick. Meanwhile, the swallowed clock in my abdomen counted down minutes till my insides would betray me. I carved symbols of manhood into Neverland trees, symbols I could never carve quite deep enough into me and prayed my bark would scar quick. When I was a little boy, I played Peter. And Peter always dressed in clothes made out of leaves. Lost boys! Little lost boys! Follow me! Little lost boys dressed in the skins of the things they killed filled the forest with dancing little lost boy half-breeds. When I was a little boy, I learned little girls were pretty, like lanterns, but not to be placed on the ground except when stronger light by house fire was needed, having half-lives at best. I learned little girls in love thought less and less clearly that a glint in the eye was a chance, an opportunity. I learned elephants in your bedroom could swallow secrets without first asking to sit on your chest. And when I was a little boy, I knew time would one day grow the weakness inside of me into blooming rot and I would wake up seeping. See, when I was a little boy, I played Peter. I played Peter, but should have known it could only ever be make-believe. I could only ever be little lost boys. Lost boys. Follow me. I could only ever be Little lost boy dressed in the skins of others I could only ever be half. 
breed. Because when I was a little boy, I felt shrapnel hit daily at this woman I would one day grow into being. And I've spent years clawing pieces from this body I have fought to wake up seeing. Attached to fingers I clawed freedom from and dug ditches with and threw pitches out of. When I was a little boy, I had little boy mouth and little boy teeth and little boy tongue. I could little boy speak but never learned how to hide my little boy eyes from all that's lost when little boys see like how little talk there is to little boys about the kind of strong little girls have to be. Thanks for listening to a Joycast from Joy 94.9. Thanks for listening to another Joy podcast brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Help keep Joy on air. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community.